I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well these passions red which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear, My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. Nothing beside remains, round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. That was Ozymandias by Percy Shelley. This is Hidden History. I'm your host, Ellis Tucci, and today we're going to learn about the Bronze Age Collapse. You're listening to Episode 30, Ozymandias. The Bronze Age, which lasted from 3000 BC to 1200 BC, particularly around the Mediterranean and Asia Minor, was a time of civilization building, of grand monuments, massive temples and palaces, of art, international trade and urbanization. Then over the course of around half a century, almost every significant city along the Mediterranean was wiped from the map many would never be inhabited again. At the onset of the Bronze Age, most people lived in small villages made up of a smattering of primitive houses and huts. But as time rolled on, humans developed some of the first significant urban centers, like Akkad in Mesopotamia, Byblos in modern-day Lebanon, Hattusa in Asia Minor, Knossos on the island of Crete, and the legendary city of Troy in modern Turkish Anatolia. There were a host of extremely powerful city-states, expansive proto-empires and wealthy nations centered around the Mediterranean Sea, and undoubtedly one of the most important was ancient Egypt. The case of ancient Egypt is a little bit different from the rest of the Bronze Age societies in that not only is it among the most well-documented of the ancient Mediterranean civilizations, but the early Bronze Age actually started in Egypt around 200 years before it's recognized to have started in the rest of the world. The Egyptian Bronze Age began in 3200 BC, with the end of the final iteration of the prehistoric Nakata culture, known as Nakata III. This third phase of Nakata culture coincided with the elevation of kings and other ruling figureheads to the forefront of the mechanisms of government. The concept of the state had only started to emerge in the previous cultural phase, and so this concentration of power really set the stage for the political absolutism that we can see in later Bronze Age societies. The chronology of the Bronze Age in ancient Egypt is full of highs and lows. Moving on from the end of Nakata III, Egypt goes into the appropriately named Early Dynastic Period, which was when Upper and Lower Egypt were unified and ruled by an all-powerful god-king, an early incarnation of what would later become the pharaoh. Following the early dynastic period, we have the Old Kingdom, which is succeeded by the First Intermediate Period, a period of approximately 125 years when two factions within a unified Egypt waged war against each other. 
you might be able to tell by the naming conventions of these time periods that eventually they'll repeat themselves, and that is totally a correct assertion. After the first intermediate period, we have the Middle Kingdom, the second intermediate period, the New Kingdom, and the third intermediate period. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Half of the New Kingdom and all of the Third Intermediate Period don't happen within the confines of the Bronze Age. The point is that Ancient Egypt was an incredibly advanced and prosperous society, and that may have been one of the things that contributed to its ultimate collapse in the middle of the New Kingdom. Egypt was prosperous and powerful, yes, but stable? Not necessarily. Egyptian society was plagued by civil unrest, and Egyptian government was plagued by corruption. And so when marauding armies came knocking at their door, at first, Egypt was able to defend itself. But eventually they were completely overwhelmed and lost a good deal of their territory. But that begs the question. If almost all of these incredibly advanced civilizations around the Mediterranean suffered catastrophic collapse within the same general time frame, then who was doing the conquering and marauding? Well, that is a great question, which is why I'm going to hold off a little bit and address it later when we have more context for the greater late Bronze Age collapse. Historians and archaeologists have reason to believe that this societal collapse was violent and incredibly destructive, so let's take a look at some of the evidence behind those assertions. In Anatolia, now known as Asia Minor, there were a diverse array of complex civilizations jockeying for wealth, power, and influence. There were the Hittites, who built their economy on tin and copper, the components of bronze, while the Egyptians built theirs around gold. There were the Amorites, the Hurrians, the Mitanni, the Mycenaean Greeks, and more. Apart from those urban centers that were under Assyrian administration, every single one of these centers that has been excavated has what's called a destruction layer, or a layer of sediment that shows evidence of widespread fire, mass killings, unburied bodies, or similar signs of chaos and destruction. But it's not just sites in Anatolia that showed this destruction layer. They appear to some degree in every single region that played a significant role in the late Bronze Age. Greece, Syria, Crete, Egypt, the Levant, Mesopotamia. We even find destruction layers as far away as Mahenudaro in the Indus River Valley. The collapse of these societies happened in such rapid succession that they couldn't come to one another's aid. In 1928, archaeologists accidentally discovered the ancient port city of Ugarit on the northern coast of Syria. One of the many things that they found during their excavations of the city were a series of cuneiform tablets known as the Ugaritic texts. They include a large number of writings on Ugaritic religious rites and traditions, economic and administrative treatises, legal texts, and personal correspondences. One of these correspondences was a response from the king of Ugarit, Amurapi, to the king of a neighboring Middle Eastern state, Alasia. The text, carbon dated to between 1192 and 1190 BCE, is translated as follows. My father, behold, the enemy's ships came. My cities were burned, and they did evil things in my country. 
Does not my father know that all my troops and chariots are in the land of Hatti, and all my ships are in the land of Luca? Thus the country is abandoned to itself. May my father know it. The seven ships of the enemy that came here inflicted much damage upon us. By the time the king of Carchemish was able to send aid to Ugarit, the city had been sacked in totality, burned, and completely abandoned. The case is similar throughout all of the Mediterranean, and we still have that nagging question. Who were these mysterious marauders that brought the pinnacle of Bronze Age civilization to its knees? Who had set back human progress so far that we wouldn't enjoy a similar standard of living until the Classical Age, some 500 years later? The destruction was so massive in scale that skills like reading and writing practically disappeared and were clung to by only a handful of groups throughout the region. Who was it that caused this incredible Dark Age? That is indeed an important question, but the nature of that question hints at another one that I think might be even more important. The people that instigated the late Bronze Age collapse were not conquerors. They didn't carve out vast swaths of land and forge an empire from all they destroyed. They were seemingly, in effect, barbarians. So just like the fall of Rome almost 2,000 years later, we have to ask ourselves what was happening within these grand bastions of civilization that allowed them to become so weak and vulnerable that they could be decimated by nomadic barbarians. To figure this out, we're going to have to look at the late Bronze Age civilizations through the lens of what's called systems collapse, which is essentially when a culture disintegrates because its governmental and social institutions cease to function. Now, as our example, we could use any of the Mediterranean warrior aristocracies, but to make it easier on myself for research's sake and you for continuity's sake, we're going to take a look back at Egypt. Now the first thing to note is the sheer amount of control that the government had over the function of the economy. There is no modern parallel. Farmers were told what, where, and how much they would plant, when they would harvest, and what they would do with their end product. Craftsmen were told what and how much they would make, as well as how much it would be sold for. The vast majority of the money or other exchange medium flowed through and was aggregated in administrative centers, where it was then distributed to the populace based on how much they needed to survive. This economic system is appropriately called the palace economy, and as the Bronze Age entered its twilight years, people became more and more dissatisfied with the palace economy. In Egypt specifically, it was actually being eroded bit by bit by the semblance of a crude market economy, which, understandably, wasn't good for the palace. The propagation of the palace system was by no means the only source of power for ancient Mediterranean states, but it was a significant contributor. And so a weaker palace economy means a weaker government that is less capable of controlling its people, which ties directly into the next facet of ancient civil unrest. The ancient states were structured as absolutist hereditary autocracies. They were by nature extraordinarily centralized. 
They had to be in order for the ruler to direct every aspect of their economy and society. But this autocratic structure is yet another weakness that contributed to the ultimate downfall of these civilizations. As a society becomes more and more centralized around a singular leader, not only can that leader become overwhelmed with the trivialities of small-time governance, but that individual is naturally elevated to incredible heights within the power structure of a nation. Egypt was ruled by a pharaoh, a part god, part king that ruled by divine ordinance. This meant that any good thing that happened within ancient Egypt could be attributed to the wise and gracious actions of the pharaoh. But on the other side of that coin, any environmental disaster, plague or economic bust would be laid at the pharaoh's feet, causing greater unrest as the people doubted the divinity of their king. You might be able to tell that this perpetuates a cycle. The people become unsatisfied with a palace economy that doesn't meet their needs, so they operate outside of it, which weakens the state, hampering its ability to plan both militarily, economically, and socially. States are centrally planned to such an extent that this lapse causes further social and economic unrest, which damages the palace economy, and the cycle repeats. So we have a relatively unstable governmental structure controlling vast territories around the Mediterranean. And then to make things worse, we have environmental factors. Using the Palmer Drought Index, we can analyze historical drought data and see that there is historical precedent for a drought that would have affected all of the areas devastated by the Bronze Age collapse. A drought, especially an expansive and long-lasting drought, would have had catastrophic effects on civilizations like Egypt, whose agricultural products come from the nutrient-rich soil deposited on the banks of the Nile by annual flooding. The entire agricultural economy of ancient Egypt was based around the predictable flooding of the Nile. To disrupt that pattern with a drought would be like taking a leg off a three-legged stool. But there's more. After the Bronze Age came the Iron Age, and so there are some archaeologists and historians who believe that in the late Bronze Age, the armies of these grand civilizations, which were usually made up of a hereditary warrior class, in the case of Egypt, charioteers, were completely overwhelmed by armies wielding iron armor and weapons, the new tactics to match. The hereditary nature of these armies meant that ancient governments couldn't exactly summon up more on command. And for Egypt, each chariot cost a hefty sum to build, and each charioteer took years upon years to train. The Bronze Age civilizations were fighting an outdated war. But there's that question again. These ancient armies might have been crippled in fights against enemies with more modern equipment and tactics, but for God's sake, when is he going to talk about who those enemies were? Well, I'm glad you asked because I'm going to talk about that right now. And let me tell you, the answer might frustrate you. Who was it that brought an end to all of these mighty ancient civilizations? Well, we don't actually know for sure, but we do know that they came from the sea. I should also say right now that this theory is not universally accepted, and there are historians and archeologists that will push back upon this theory. For lack of a better name, they're called the Sea People, 
and they were essentially pirates that roamed the Mediterranean. Our sources for this theory come primarily from seven different ancient Egyptian accounts dating from 1210 to 1100 BCE. And it's important to note that although the term Sea People implies some larger collective belonging, the Egyptians actually identified them as nine separate groups. The Ekwesh, Luka, Peleset, Danyan, Sheridan, Shekelesh, Tershesh, Sheker, and Weshesh. And no, that doesn't exactly solve the mystery of who these people were, because those are just the Egyptian names for them. We do know who some of these nine groups were, like the Luka, who lived in southwest Anatolia and had a hostile relationship with their Hittite neighbors. The Peleset were the Philistines, renowned for their conflict with the Israelites that you may or may not have heard of from the Bible. But other than that, we're pretty out of luck. There are, of course, a number of hypotheses, including that the Denians were Mycenaean Greeks, that the Teresh hailed from Troy, or that the Sheridan were Sardinians or Sicilians. Others posit that they were the result of migratory waves from further east, or that the Sea People were refugees from a famine in Anatolia. But ultimately, we have no definitive proof of any of these theories. And they'll probably be debated back and forth by scholars of the ancient world for decades to come. But for me, at least. The origin of the Sea People isn't the question we need a satisfying answer on. All we have to know is that they did indeed come from somewhere. Maybe their alluring mystery will spark an interest in the ancient world for a new generation of archaeologists. I think that the question that really matters in terms of a greater historical narrative, we already have somewhat of an answer to. We have some idea, even though it's not universally agreed upon, of how these civilizations, once among the most powerful and hopeful on Earth, cannibalized themselves to the point where they could be handily beaten by nine disparate groups of roving pirates, who may or may not have had iron. Study of the Late Bronze Age provides an incredibly interesting glimpse into a series of societies on the brink that only needed a slight push to be sent plummeting to the depths of ignominy. The music in this week's episode was provided by A. Shmalowev Music. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. My name is Ellis Tucci, host of Hidden History. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair.